Hi, I'm Laura Cox Kaplan. You're listening to She Said, She Said. According to the National Coalition Against Domestic Violence, nearly 20 people per minute are physically abused by an intimate partner in the United States. That's approximately 10 million women and men. There are more than 20,000 phone calls placed to domestic violence hotlines nationwide, and one in 15 children are exposed to some type of intimate partner violence each year. 90% of those are eyewitnesses to this violence. The economic impacts are also significant, with costs exceeding some $8.3 billion per year. The impact doesn't just affect victims and their families, although obviously it does that. It impacts the broader society as well. Those are startling statistics, and it's why Jan Langbein's work is so incredibly important. For more than 20 years, Jan has been at the helm of the Genesis Women's Shelter and Support in Dallas, Texas. During that time, the program and its services have grown from a seven-bed emergency shelter into a multidisciplinary facility that takes a holistic view of the broad impact associated with domestic violence from immediate safety and security for victims and their children to counseling, education, and also legal services. Jan has received countless awards for her work, including a Trailblazer Award earlier this year from the Bush Institute at Southern Methodist University. But Jan's path to leadership at Genesis and in the area of domestic abuse will probably surprise you. It's part of what makes her story and the positive impact that she's had in Dallas and around the country so incredibly inspiring. Jan, welcome to She Said, She Said. I am thrilled to be here. Thank you so much for taking the time to come by and visit with us. Well, I'm so happy to be here and to meet you. As I told you, uh, Joel had a chance, my husband Joel had a chance to hear you speak at the Trailblazer Award and came home and said, you've got to get Jan on the podcast. So here we are. That was an incredible evening, and I was so honored by the President and Mrs. Bush for that recognition. So yeah, it was great. Yeah, well, we're really happy to, to be here with you today. Let's start with this question of how you originally got involved with efforts to stem domestic violence. Right, right. No, I'm happy to talk about that. It's kind of a long answer to a short question, um, but I, I, I am not from abuse. Um, I really didn't think about it. If I thought about it, I assumed it happened to someone else, or I really didn't understand how pervasive it is. I didn't know that every nine seconds in this country a woman is assaulted. I didn't know that domestic violence is the leading cause of injury to women in the United States. And how it started for me, I actually am a member, a sustaining member now, but I was an active member of the Junior League of Dallas. And for those who don't know about Junior Leagues International, it's an organization of women who volunteer in the community 
and train young women for leadership positions. Well, I have this theory about that, that there are major leaguers and there are minor leaguers, and I definitely sat in the minor leagues. I sat in the back row. I went to my minimum, minimum number of meetings. I did my minimum number of volunteer hours, and I thought I was getting by with just, just enough. I volunteered at my children's school and, and our church, and that was enough, right? So I'm, uh, it was time actually to sign up for that next year's volunteer shift, and I started going through the brochure looking for the easy way out. Well, a little nugget of wisdom. If you want to make God laugh, look for the easy way out in life because it does not exist. And so um, I thought I found it. I thought it was, you know, kind of uh, you didn't have to go or if you went, you could wear jeans. And if you wore jeans, you didn't have to do extra training. And I thought, well, this is for me. So I'm literally driving to Junior League headquarters here in Dallas. And um, I had actually broken one of my junior league acrylic fingernails, and I had, I thought, well, I want to do good in the community, but I think my nails ought to look nice, and so I whipped into this salon to get my nails fixed. I was in a huge hurry because I didn't want this placement to fill up before I got there, and so as I was sitting there waiting, literally, honestly, this magazine slipped, slid into my lap, and on the cover it said just what I was saying to you. Every nine seconds a woman is assaulted, leading cause of injury. One out of every four women you pass in your workplace, in your faith community, in the grocery store will know family violence on an ongoing basis. And I was just offended. I'm like, you've got to be kidding me. I hadn't, I kept thinking, well, nobody who lives near where I live or went to school where I went to school. And I, I kept making these excuses. I went on to read the article. It was about a couple he they were both professional he was maybe she was a lawyer and he a dentist or vice versa and he beat her because dinner was late and I'm like you've got to be kidding me and so anyway I long story longer I did get my nails fixed but got to junior league headquarters forgot all about the easy way out opened up the book to violence intervention put my finger down on Genesis Women's Shelter and that was the beginning that was about 30 years ago wow um, I was the Tuesday morning volunteer I got down there expecting women to look differently than you and I do whatever that is um, I didn't know their children would look like my children um, I found that battered women are tall and short and fat and thin and black and white Hispanic poor and prevalent, uh, uh, resourced, um, but the one thing they have in common is that they were in a relationship with an abusive partner. The main thing that I didn't know that had happened that day as a result of this Junior League um, affiliation is that I had been given an opportunity and that opportunity was to make a difference. I volunteered on Tuesday morning, answered the hotline, ended up on the board of directors uh, for the Junior League to represent the league on this nonprofit board. And um, one day the president came and said, basically, we need new leadership. She needs to be able to work the crowd and raise money. Out of my mouth shoots, oh my gosh, I think that's me. I'm looking around to see who said it because, oh my goodness, <laughs> I had no qualifications. I didn't even have a resume. I was a stay-at-home mom. I was Kool-Aid mom of the block. So why in the world they would consider me when I... I, I felt I didn't have the qualifications, which is beyond me, but they threw down the gauntlet and I said, well, are you kidding? And they said, well, we're not kidding, are you kidding? Now again, it was a smaller program back then, and but, but I didn't have the background, I didn't have the experience, but I put one foot in front of the other. And I, I came down, I first had to tell the family, hey, dinner's gonna be really, really late. <laughs> but um, then I came down and I'm, I, 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 again, I'm offended. I'm like, well, how, how do women go get a job if they, if they don't have any place for their, for their children? And so we put daycare on site. Well, what about 
school-age children like yours, then we put a school on site. How do I get a protective order if I don't have any resources to hire an attorney? Um, so we put legal services, legal clinic on site. And over the years, uh, I was hired 28 years ago as the CEO, and over the years we've just tried to remove those roadblocks that can mean defeat. Um, what I love, one of the many things I love about Genesis is that it's very tailor-made and it recognizes that abuse, you can be bruiseless and be battered. Does that make sense? Yes. There are so many choices of weapons that abusers will use to, uh, to, to gain power and control, which is what this is all about. So maybe he hits her. Maybe he calls her horrible names. Maybe he controls all the money, does not let her have even access to money she might earn. Maybe it's spiritual abuse or it's verbal abuse or it's sexual abuse. There are so many choices of weapon, uh, weapons that he might use. And so over the years, we've just tried to address those in, and remove those roadblocks. Yeah. How, how do we know? I mean, as, as you're describing the different kinds of abuse, and there are lots of different kinds right. of abuse, right. what, how do you know what to look for? Like What's your what, advice how, how for, for someone who's in it to understand this is abusive or for how to help a friend or what? Both. I actually yeah. was referring to how to help a friend, yeah. but I think it works both ways yeah, let's because start with I that. suspect the self-awareness of acknowledging that you are a victim right. of abuse it's very hard to do. is very hard Laura, to it's do. it's very hard to do. And you, you know your marriage is trouble, but where, where did that, uh, on that continuum did it become abusive and with physical abuse it's very definite if he hits you once that's physical abuse that's domestic violence but doesn't that come later right it starts not, nece with uh, not necessarily if, mm. there, if there is a, a wanting to establish immediate control and that's what it is let me let me let's back up um, let me tell you what domestic violence is not. Mm -hmm. Domestic violence is not a fight that got out of control and it's not an isolated incident. We know it's a pattern of behavior to gain power and control over another human being. I refer to he as the perpetrator and she as the victim because at Genesis that's with whom we deal, but also in 95% of the battered population the woman is the victim and the severity is usually much greater when the woman is the victim. But it is against the law in every state in the United States for someone to lay a hand on you. Now based on what the state law is, based on what the state law is, is that's how it can or should be prosecuted. But as far as, you know, if he, you've ever been pushed, slapped, hit, shove against the wall, cut, burned, go on and on and on, that is intimate partner violence, by, by a partner, is intimate partner violence. Yeah, the other piece about recognizing. Oh, how do you recognize? Yeah, if you where, have a friend. What if he or, has never hit you? What if, how do you know when it's verbally abusive? And that was always a struggle for me. I testify a lot in court cases and the defense attorney will say, well, don't you argue? Doesn't everybody argue? Yes, but where does it become abusive? And what I, what I try to say is a, a normal argument, if I'm arguing with my husband, it's over something. It's over he wants a dog and I don't want a dog, or it's over how he votes and I cancel out his vote, or whatever it is. There is an issue, there's a start, and there's a finish. Where When it becomes verbally abusive, it's when it's not even about a subject. It's something that has kicked off this barrage of insults and slurs. It's when I am being told I'm stupid and I'm ugly and I'm fat and I'm a loser and I'm lazy and I'm not a good mom, I'm not I'm not a good wife. That That is not about an issue. That's not about a dog. That's not about a vote or a political affiliation. That is about one person trying to gain power and control by using 
the choice of weapon of words, mm -hmm. basically. And so whenever there is a put down or name calling, that's when it becomes verbally abusive. So then let's look at financial control. And again, I'm not allowed to work or I don't know what our finances are and I'm not allowed to look or the money that I have squirreled away has been taken from me. Um, I am not allowed to, as I say, have my own paycheck go into mine. All my money has to go into his account. And it doesn't start off, it doesn't feel abusive. A lot of times we hear women say, they marry this guy, very affluent guy, and he says, you know, honey, you don't have to work. Just, by the way, bring me home all the receipts that you spend so that I can keep up with the finances. Well, that sounds good to me, until it doesn't sound good to me anymore when I'm not allowed to have my name on the car or the house or the stock portfolio or the house in Aspen or the or the WIC card. It, 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 if, if I have no say in our finances, that, that can be control, that can be power and control. Um, the same thing with spiritual abuse, you know, when, when I'm not allowed to go to my faith community or I'm, uh, I'm not allowed to, um, I'm, I'm told with biblical backup that I'm not good enough. You're not a Proverbs 31 or Jesus suffered, so you should suffer too. Um, when we know that using, you don't want to throw down that card, I'm just saying, that's going to come back and haunt you at some point. But unfortunately, many women think, in fact, we understand women who are involved in a faith community are less likely to tell and least likely to get out. The faith communities can become fertile ground for misinterpretation of scripture and an understanding of that. Um, so yeah, there's lots of ways to do it. So how do you know if a friend, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm is involved in a violent relationship. Um, sometimes if it's physical, it can be, gosh, she's wearing you know sweaters and scarves in the middle of summer, or inappropriately being able to explain why she's canceled yet again, or I'm so clumsy I fell down, or missing a whole lot of work, or m sometimes they just want you to know. I, I had lunch with a girlfriend one time, Laura, that literally, she said, let's sit outside in Dallas, Texas. You don't usually do that in the summer, but she kind of had on a little jacket and she took it off and hung it on the neck. Well, there's a big bruise right here she wanted me to know and hear me say how we respond to that right. can mean whether or not she tells you or anybody ever again if we say gosh what would you do well, what I did was just stand there you know I mean, so we need to say tell me what's happened tell me what's going on with you and hear me say I'm very scared for you uh, how we respond can make a difference um, how do we know if a friend is in a verbally abusive relationship well usually he he will let that carry out into the public. When that happens, you know it's, it's pretty severe at home as well. Um, but he can make, may make terrible jokes about her or put her down all the time out in public. And, and at that point, I, the, the hair on my, my neck starts, starts raising. Sometimes it's subtle. Um, but I, I remember a time I was out at uh, the airport, DFW airport, and I know travel is tense and traveling with my spouse is tense. <laughs> but I got to tell you, there was this guy screaming at this woman at the counter, get this luggage up here and get over here and give me your, and uh, man, she went into the ladies room and I was right up behind her. I don't know who she was or where she was from or where she was going, but I pulled out a business card with the National Domestic Violence Hotline uh, on it. She kind of looked at, gave me a funny look, like, what, what, what do you, mind your own business kind of look. And I was like, you know, that's okay. That's okay because I'm scared for you. I'm scared of him. I'm scared of him for you. Um, do you and think she even recognized at that That's what I'm saying. I don't yeah. know that she does. And so sometimes it's super important mm -hmm. for a friend to step up and say, I'm scared for you. Now, she may have thrown that away. I think she gave him the card because they kind of both looked over at me. And I'm like, bring it. You know, I mean, I, I'm not going to get in a tussle with you here, but I am also not going to not say something if, in fact, and, and I think that's where 
That's where caring for each other is. This can't be left on the steps of TSA or the city police or the courts. We have to, we have to as women, we have to as women be able to turn each to the other and say, I'm scared for you. If the odds are that one out of every three or four women you pass, you're probably right if this guy's screaming at her in the airport. If he's doing that there, mm-hmm. what's, he, what's he doing at home? Jan, let's, let's back it up a bit sure. and talk about is there a way for women, maybe particularly young women, to recognize potential signs of yes, a guy yes. who grows up, or maybe already is, yeah. but grows up to become that really yeah, awful guy? Yeah. What should they look for? What are the danger signs and the red flags right. when you're in a relationship as a young person, or maybe just in a new relationship? Right. What are we looking for? Yeah, and unfortunately, it's it's so hard to sort out because it's every girl's dream. I mean, it's, it, they, these relationships come on fast. They are very, it's full of attention. It may be full of gifts. It may be full of promises, but you're the girl of my dreams. It happens so fast and you're committed before you've even given it a chance to realize who that person is, what they're made of, where they come from. Um, so typically, we see these relationships become very intense very quickly. Um, and then then little by little we start seeing things where uh, everything becomes her fault um, whether that is the raise he didn't get or the ticket he wasn't he was you were talking in the car and I wasn't paying attention to the speed it's your fault transferring the blame is isn't is one thing mm-hmm. but then also uh, externalizing his anger for example how does he treat people in a in a restaurant how does he treat wait staff if it's demanding and it's abusive then I guarantee that comes home in the afternoon or in the evening um, so there's signs that kind of give us uh-oh feelings but I got to tell you as women I, I think generally as women we try to l- get over that we look we, we make excuses for that. We think, oh, well, he didn't mean that. Oh, I can't believe he called me that. But, you know, he's under so much pressure at work. And so where he's externalizing his anger, we internalize ours. Where he transfers the blame, we accept the blame. So we kind sometimes kind of fit hand in glove together. I heard we had a, an amazing uh, fundraising luncheon here not long ago. And um, actor um, Terry Crews was our speaker. And he was talking about toxic masculinity. And he was saying, almost, he was referring to um, men who prostitute women. Mm-hmm. It, but if you think in terms of domestic violence, this really rang true. He said, if you will treat, this is what men teach men. It's like a handbook. He said, if you will, if you will treat her nicely for three weeks, she will spend the next three years trying to relive those three weeks. And I see that in domestic violence, in intimate partner relationships. If it comes on great and it's sweet and it's, he's helpful and he's supportive and he wants to take care of me, then I will spend the next three years trying to feel that again. Because you assume that is the norm versus Correct. the behavior that That is that just manipulation. Yeah. That is a sales pitch. That is a sleight of hand. That's what that is. And unless you, again, if you can take the time and really examine who this person really is. Uh, another thing is, does he come from a history of abuse, whether that is in a previous relationship or did he grow up in it? That also puts him at high risk of being in, being violent, being, being a perpetrator. Mm-hmm. What about the role of substance abuse, yeah. whether it's alcohol or opioids yeah, or other yeah. types of drugs? No, that's a great question and I get that a lot. Um, there is, at times, 
um, a, a relationship, but it's not cause and effect. He doesn't beat me because he's drunk. He beats me when he's drunk. Mm. Um, he And we know that that doesn't cause it because he didn't beat up the police officer who came in. He didn't beat up his boss on the way home from work. He beat me up because he can. He can, and it also, he does it because it works. Um, if you think about whatever his excuse is, I had to hit you because if every time, for example, and he tells me it's my fault, and I tell I tell myself it's my fault. Let's say every time I fry chicken, I, he beats me. Then I'm going to quit frying chicken. So you, that that negative reinforcement actually perpetuates that abuse. He's thinking, I guess that's what you got to do to get a decent meal on the table. And I'm thinking, what was I what was I thinking? I know he doesn't like fried chicken. Why did I do that today? Um, and so it's it's really strange the dynamics of that. Yeah. Yeah. Oh wow. So we've talked a bit about sort of the abuse cycle. We've talked a bit about the different kinds of abuse. Let's talk about how things have changed here at Genesis uh -huh. since you came on board. Because despite the fact that you did not have a lot of experience with domestic violence, right. you joined, you found a way to create a really interesting strategic and holistic approach right. so that you're looking at all of these different and very complex dimensions. So talk about how this program has grown and changed and evolved since right, you started. Right, right. And as I mentioned earlier, a, a lot of it is just needs-based, needs-based. But um, I think, you know, again, not having been a manager, I think the smartest thing I've ever done is hire the smartest people I can find. I certainly looked and studied other people's types of management, but at the end of the day, I, I, as a manager, as an employer, I try to treat people like I'd like to be treated. I don't ask anybody to, and I tell everybody this as I hire them, uh, I don't ask you to do anything I wouldn't do. However, I set the bar really high for myself. So basically, lead, follow, or get the heck out of my way, right? <laughs> but the one thing that I learned over the years after making several managerial mistakes the one thing that I, I realized that I wanted not only people to get on this bus, but I needed them to be on the right seat on the bus. And I, the if I, you go up and down the hall here, you would see that the head of my conference came from a banking background, and the head of my community engagement came from a marketing PR background. But the one common thread, the one common thread, is that um, these the, the men and women who work here have to have a fire in their belly to end violence against women. If they do not have that, if that passion isn't there, then they don't make it here, mm -hmm. either by my choice or their choice, but either way, it, it, you don't fit here. The corporate culture is that, number one, we, we want to end violence against women and children. I want to work us out of, a, out of work. I want to end this. Um, but then with regards to the total programming, again, it was to, to remove roadblocks. And I, I don't just think it's nice if my staff sits on the edge of their seats with new ideas. I require it because I can't think it all up myself. So I wanna hear how can we do this better? What are the latest cutting edge clinical techniques? What kind of training can we do for, if we're having a problem with the way police respond to domestic violence, then we called our need to be in, in, training them on how to respond to domestic violence. So we put on this huge law enforcement conference every year here in Dallas um, for law enforcement prosecutors and advocates. So literally, you know, we, I, I look to the staff and, and other people in the community to say, well, you know, here's a need. Here's a need. Uh, we're finding that women who are 60, 70, 80 years old, who maybe have been abused in their 20s and 30s, maybe had been strangled then, are experiencing small strokes and heart attacks now mm -hmm. for what happened to them before. Wow. We know that what later life abuse 
you talk about power and control. Her choices are stay in it or go to a nursing home. So what can we do to address that under underserved or that that huge need? And so Genesis has rolled out a rolled out a new program to where we actually we know she's going to stay in it. But how can we reduce her isolation? How can we keep her safer in this marriage that's been 50, 55 years? Let's talk also about the component in protecting the children yes. of this abused person. Right. There, uh, some of the statistics about what you all have created in terms of a school environment. Right. I never thought about that. Yeah. Describe what that what that looks like here. Yeah, we know that the number one reason for moms to stay is because of the children, and the number one reason for her to leave is the children. Mm-hmm. Um, she is, is caught between this: I want my children to have a father, but having an abusive father is not the answer either. We also know that this this domestic violence, there is a generational um, uh, aspect to it that we want to break that cycle, that generational cycle of violence for these kiddos. We know that they have been not only physically impacted, but physiologically and psychologically psychologically impacted as well. You talked at the top of the show about those witnessing children, finding your mother, wondering if, if she's late for carpool, does that mean she's dead? I mean, it is it is profound impact. People say kids are so resilient, absolutely not. They just stuff it and stuff it and stuff it. And then they either continue the cycle or they get a gun and go shoot up a school. I mean, it's it has to explode some way. Or they become victims themselves. They, they're getting on-the-job training law to either be a victim or to be an abuser. And so, what again, what we try to do through advocacy and also counseling, cutting-edge counseling, but everything we do at Genesis is through the a lens of a trauma-informed approach. So not only is our hotline, so is our clinical program, but so is our on-site school. These are kiddos. The, the studies say that on any given day in any of our public school systems, about 15% of any classroom, those kiddos are living in domestic violence. Another 15% have experienced it during that school year. So now we're looking at 30, 35, 40% of kids in every classroom across the United States have known domestic violence. Well, these kids, how do we expect them to excel? How do we expect them to even keep up when you know they are triggered by sights and sounds and smells? While we've been talking, the air conditioner came came on. I have little kids who, when that happens, they break out in a sweat because dad never lets them have air conditioning when he's not home. Or maybe they hear a door slam or they hear the maintenance man's voice and they're constantly in fight or flight. Um, and so we have developed a model school, a trauma-informed model school where these kids can say to you, we, they call it their lid, they, they flip their lid, it's mm-hmm. the prefrontal cortex that exposes that amygdala as how they have survived for their five or seven or 11 years of life. And so these kids have core practices, they have deep breathing, they have stop and think areas. We do not obviously have corporal punishment. We don't even do time out because it's so shaming and these kids feel so shamed anyway that they are somehow not good enough or it was their fault mom got hit. Um, And so we have created this learning environment the other tricky part about that school is that we never know what grades are coming in because we have families arriving in the night with a second, fifth, and ninth grader, and then a second grader and a preschooler who doesn't speak English. And so my faculty stands ready to teach. They're teaching habitats for mammals. They teach have to be able to teach it at all levels. But again, through this lens of a trauma-informed approach, mm-hmm. that we understand the impact that, that this abuse has had on these kiddos. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I have so many questions. Yeah. <laughs> it's hard to even know where to sort of how to break this down. One one question that springs to mind 
And you, you mentioned this a, a, a couple of minutes ago, training programs for police forces, right. where if there's not physical, obvious physical abuse, it is difficult for the police department for, it, to it know yeah. how to deal with right. that. So how, how, so what are you doing in terms of educating them? What are they looking for? How are you helping them to see the signs, even if it's not a bloody nose or a black eye? Right, right. And I think those are good questions. With regards to the police, if it's not a bloody nose or a black eye, unfortunately, it's not illegal. Right. Um, you know, you can't arrest somebody for screaming personal slurs at me. Um, I wish you could, but you can't. Yep. Uh, but what we would talk to them about is the escalation of abuse, that if he called, you, called her that first and then he slapped her, we know that not only will it increase, it will happen again. If he hit her once, he's going to hit her again, and it will increase in severity and it will increase in frequency. So do not disregard a misdemeanor C, I tell these recruits mm -hmm. at the Dallas Police Academy, because that absolutely will, without intervention, without accountability, that will go to a misdemeanor A into a felony possibly into a homicide um, and so we want them to understand the dynamics why are they called back to that house Saturday night after Saturday night I want police to know the danger it is of walking up onto a house many police officers in fact I think more police officers are killed responding to domestic violence than any other kind of crime so they need to know for their own protection what they're walking up on. Mm -hmm. um, and so we, we want them to understand, again, the dynamics and why back out to that same house Saturday night after Saturday night. So I gave an example uh, to this last class that I trained, and there was a woman who is, lives in a very affluent part of town near, near where we are right now. And it was just escalating and escalating, and, and I knew she had been in our counseling program. I knew that this was going to be dangerous. So I went by the police department and said, you know, if you could just do an extra drive-by or, or just check on that family as much as you can because I think something bad's fixing to happen. And so they said, you know, it was funny. This is a corporal or a lieutenant mm -hmm. said, yeah, I called. they called me out the other day. And he goes, I picked up the call, but when I got there, again, a large Dallas home, and they were out in the front yard, and he was, they were yelling, and basically she was fixing to have her book club meet at her house. He was having the yard crew come in, and he wanted the yard scalped. And she's like, I don't want the yard scalped. I've worked really hard to landscape and have, you know, these flowers blooming. And, and so the police walked up on it, and he said, you know, we're just arguing about how to cut the grass kind of thing. And the guy said, what did you do? He said, I drove off. And I said, why did you do that? And he goes, what am I doing there, right? I mean, they're just having a, having a fight, right, an argument, disagreement. Mm -hmm. And I said, let me ask you this. When do I call the police? When I want landscaping advice, when do I call you? And he literally stopped and thought, and he said, well, I guess when you're scared. And I'm like, absolutely, mm. absolutely. So I try to teach police to look beyond the bruises that show right. or and look to see where else they are, number one. But the potential for violence, so many times police officers just have to respond to, the hardware store has been broken into. My car has already been stolen. This is one issue that we can prevent crime. Mm -hmm. We can prevent all kinds of crime, as a matter of fact. If we will address the violence in this home, 99% of men who prostitute children, girls, women and girls, grew up in a violent home. 98% of the girls who are prostituted grew up in a violent home. So if we want to look at human trafficking, those crimes, Stop domestic violence. Nobody wants to walk the street at 3 in the morning unless it's worse than that in their own home, right? Yeah. So I think we could look at the continuation of that violence of all kinds of different crimes and societal ills, teen pregnancy, teen suicide. 
you look at the intersection, Laura, between mass shootings and domestic homicide, domestic violence, mm -hmm. and you will be horrified. If you look at the Boston Marathon bombing, the Parkland, Florida shooting, if you look at Sutherland Springs, Texas, you look at Las Vegas shooting, every single one of those has a history of domestic violence. Mm -hmm. The boy who at Parkland, Florida was expelled from school, that's all we heard until we looked deep, more deeply, and it was because he had you know, assaulted this girl, basically. Sutherland Springs, Texas, our state's biggest mass shooting. The man had gone to First Baptist Church on Sunday morning to kill his wife and kill his mother-in-law. They were not there that Sunday, and so he slaughtered the other people in the church that day. So I think if we want to create safe streets and safe communities, we're going to have to look at creating safe homes as well. Yeah. When you look at the punishment for these crimes, so, right. so, so going forward, I actually had a, there was a note from a woman in North Carolina mm -hmm. about the podcast. This was actually several months ago, and she was suggesting that we look at the issue of domestic violence right. because her daughter is the victim of abuse. Right. And every time they go into court, it's a class 1C misdemeanor, right. and he's back out on the street and back able to right. attack her. And right. so her mother was horrified and said, yeah. why can't something be done about yeah. that? Talk about efforts to yeah. look at policy and you know change some of the protocols yes, around that this. has to be a piece of it as well it has to be so the way that we address those types of crimes are at the state level mm -hmm. i can i can't speak to to the carolinas but i can tell you in texas we recognized that basically if it's a class c misdemeanor he basically pays a fine. Mm. So uh, class C misdemeanor, would, he left a mark, but that would, that might be a slap or maybe a shove back or something like that. And that's the standard in Texas. That's the standard in Texas. So what that means is, is if the penalty for that is just pay a fine, that means if you've got the money to beat your wife, you can. That's it. If, you've, if you can pay for it, you can do it. Well, so Texas has recognized this, and we have a strong domestic violence lobby here, in, uh, lobbying efforts here in Texas, and we've recognized that because this is going to continue to happen, we've actually enhanced two misdemeanors can become a felony. Slap me twice, and that can be enhanced to a felony, which is much more, now we're talking some more serious, that can be pen time, actually. Mm -hmm. It's called continuous uh, family violence assaults. Has to happen two times within one year, and that can be enhanced up to that crime. I would suggest anybody listening to this podcast, call their elected officials. Tell them we want guns out of the hands of perpetrators. In Texas, it, it is both state and across the country, it is federal law that if anyone is under a protective order or have been convicted of domestic violence, they can't have, buy, own, borrow, use a gun. But yet, guns continue to be the uh, choice of weapon in 63% of all homicides. It's the choice of weapon. Um, it may be he strangles her and he shoots her, but guns have got to get out of the hands of people who have a history of domestic violence. Let's take some leadership on this gun issue, but mm -hmm. um, it's it's got to happen. We're in Texas. Sure, guys love to hunt. We love to have our guns. We love our guns. Sure. But I think when it is killing women and children, when are we going to step up? And you put it in the hands of somebody with this kind of history of violence. I think there is a there's a lot that we can be doing, but we have to go to the state level for that. Mm -hmm. To that point, mm -hmm. in terms of everyone stepping up. What is the role, and, and sort of notwithstanding the policy piece, even though that's a big piece, but, but more broadly, 
what can men do in communities so where glad, yes. maybe you know he has a buddy yeah. he plays golf yeah. with yeah. and he suspects that this guy yeah. is really mean to his wife and potentially abusing her what's the role of men i am so glad you asked that question because i swear anybody who sees me coming is like oh here she comes again but when a man stands up and says i don't play golf with you because i don't like how you treat your wife i'm not going to do a business deal with you i don't think that joke is funny and that is it has become so apparent to me in this work that what we did i started about seven years ago in a men's auxiliary called heroes it stands for he respects others and it's gosh 300 membership who have said not only am i not going to do it. It's not okay with me if you do it. Like I think a lot of good men around say, well, I don't beat and I, I have never raped anybody and I've never assaulted anybody. Well, you know what? That's still setting the bar pretty low for yourself. You, I don't speed through a school zone, but I don't want you to speed through a school zone either. And when men hold other men accountable, it is unbelievable. What they have, my heroes do several things. They barbecue once a week down at the shelter and for women who have never had a man fix a meal for them. They um, mentor our boys one on one, a positive role, gentle man. But the one of the things that is the most significant is they put on their suits and ties and they go down to the courthouse. They sit on the bride side of the courtroom, as we say here in Texas, right. the bride side <laughs> of the courtroom. And they don't know this woman. They don't know him. But you know what? We're getting protective orders that we would not have gotten without this group of men sitting there. And this woman turns around and says, why would they care about me? Why do they care about me? They are so impactful. The judge is granting protective orders. We're finding guilties. We're having more order in the courtrooms. And I got to tell you, I think they can make such a difference. They may feel funny about saying, I'm not going to play golf with you. They may not like it. But they, they, sometimes guys, especially gentle guys, don't want that confrontation. But they can mentor a child at a local shelter, the sure. little boy who you know, they can show him that there are gentlemen in the world. They can go to their courthouse. It's open court. Anybody can sit on the bride side of the courtroom where they can actually make a difference just by their presence and their gender. A lot of this work, I can imagine, is pretty grueling for you as the leader. You see this over and over mm -hmm. and over again. You see the cycles. You're working hard to break them. But that can be pretty demoralizing. How do you keep from it affecting your spirit and your enthusiasm for the cause? What's yeah. your tool for... You know, I don't know. I, I have girlfriends that kind of stick their fingers in their ears and go, you know, don't talk to me about that. How can you stand it? And I, I tell them, it's not what goes on here that demoralizes me. It's the ones who don't get to come here. It's when I don't have enough money to, and I have to put them on a waiting list for counseling, or we, we you know, we weren't able to help them in our legal clinic, or, or I come up against somebody who says, well, if she'd like it, she'd get out. That's another thing that really bugs me is I continue to see, seem to have to explain who women are, and yes, why they don't get out, I understand, but abuse doesn't stop until abusers stop abusing. So let's ask the right questions here. So sometimes that's frustrating, but are you demoralizing not here because every day I get to come and see women who have the courage, the women in the waiting room mm -hmm. as you were, as mm -hmm. you were coming sure. in, who I think have courage that I don't know if I would ever have. I see children who come in here who won't even make eye contact and afraid to go in a room with a door closed, who end up six weeks later doing a marching band around this office. I see women who accomplish amazing things once they are freed from this yoke of abuse. Women who thought they could not, would not be able to do anything because they've been told that again and again. Are you kidding? A lady walked in the other day and said, after one year of not seeing my children, I now have full custody. My friend, that's a good day at the office. So yeah, yeah the rest of it, whatever. Yeah. 
what do you need? What is your greatest need yeah, here? I would always say funding. I would. And, and we're only limited in our resources. Um, we are uh, about to launch a capital campaign, and I look to the community to make that happen, to enlarge this space that we're in. Um, we always need funding sources. I need qualified employees, just like anybody would. Uh, but I, need a, I, need to, I, I want to move the needle on the issue. I need help with people who will also step forward and say, I was abused or I wasn't abused, but I want to be part of the solution. I don't want to be part of the problem, but I am going to try to do something to make other people's lives better. And I, I think that is what we are here meant to do. I think we are tr supposed to leave this world a better place than when we found it. Now, whatever your field of fascination is, it may not be the same of mine, but as mine, but I hope you have one. Um, but as, as women, as human beings, we cannot continue to look the other way. You know, we, I, I've watched different ills be addressed over the years in big ways. And I'm wondering, we know this and we've researched it. How is it we haven't fixed this? You cannot, I cannot believe for a minute, Laura, that it's because it's, we're not important. Right. I cannot believe that women don't count enough. Because if it was a, if it was a, a virus that came into our city, several years ago we had the, um, the Ebola virus right. come into Dallas. And if it impacted one out of every three households, what kind of resources would we pour to that? Why are we not doing it? Because it's women? I, I, I cannot let myself believe that. So I don't know what the answer is, but I'm going to keep working at it until I figure it out. I'm sure people listening are moved by what you're talking about. How is the best way for them to get involved if they've never yes, had any experience yes, with this yeah. issue? What's your recommendation? Yeah. What should they do? I would say go to our website www.genesisshelter.org and look at ways if they're local for sure there's ways to come in hands-on um, if they live in Hohokus, New Jersey send me your credit card <laughs> or get involved with a local program um, I can uh, actually refer them to the National Domestic Violence Hotline 1-800-799-SAFE and they can go on and say I live in Kansas I'd like to know the, the nearest resource because I want to roll up my sleeves and be part of this solution as well so there's lots of ways. Uh, just don't look the other way. That woman in the airport, maybe she did threw that card away, but you know what? Maybe she's safe now because someone stepped up. Yeah. Jan, what has this work meant to you personally? I feel so incredibly blessed to be able to do this work. I am I'm brought in in the midnight of people's lives, the darkest hours of their lives, and I have an opportunity to make a difference. This work has meant that I can not only make a contribution in this world, but I have raised two incredibly, incredibly strong, bright women. And I think this has impacted that as well. Uh, quick story, and you can cut yeah. it out if you need no. to. But I have my little four-year-old granddaughter at last uh, Halloween, and we're driving to driving her to preschool. And I don't get to do it that much, but she was in the back of the car and you know, she, we were just chit-chatting the whole way there and how's school and what are we doing and who's your favorite friend. And I said, what are you gonna be for Halloween? And she said, you know how they changed a hundred times right up to Halloween. She goes, I think I've decided, Nani, I wanna be Rapunzel. And I'm like, ooh, Rapunzel, I wanna talk to you about that one because you know, she's locked in a tower by a guy, she has to roll down her hair, he gets to crawl up any time he wants. 
She just sighed and said, I know, Nani, I know, we are the safety girls. Can I just listen to some Rafi on the radio? You know, and I thought, good, my work here is done. What has this meant to me? That's what this means to me, that I have these daughters and granddaughters who will never let someone lay a hand on them, who will stand up for who they are, and they will turn to the next person and say, you matter to me as well. Um, I, 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 like I say, I'm blessed to get to see courage of women. I'm blessed to be surrounded by a staff who are willing to roll up their sleeves and whatever talent they bring they want to make use of that so no it's it's amazing to get to do this yeah we ask every guest on the podcast for a single piece of advice a life hack or a mantra right what would yours be I would say find your field of fascination find that fire in your belly and make a difference Jan, thank you so much. Yes, no, my honor. Really, yeah, really no, appreciate really it. To, be here. to learn more about Jan, you can visit the website at www.shesaidshesaidpodcast.com. There we will include show notes from today's visit that will include links to Genesis as well as a couple of photos from the visit as well as the National Domestic Abuse Hotline phone number, which, as Jan said, is 1-800-799-7233, 1-800-799-7233. You'll also find our entire lineup of incredibly inspiring women who, like Jan, are having a positive impact on their communities and on our world. As always, thanks so much for listening.